Good morning. Y'all doing okay today? Christmas is upon us. It's crazy. It's chaotic. Question for you. This time of year, there's an interesting gift that some people ask for. I don't know if you are one of these people. Has anyone asked for a, an ancestry kit, DNA kit, 23andMe, that kind of stuff? Got a, like a, it's kind of like a shameful hand, like, yeah, I guess I did. I think there's something really, really intriguing about tracing our history back. And over the last few years, there have actually been, uh, well, not few, 12 years since Ancestry DNA and 23andMe have kind of come about. There's been 25 million people who have kind of started that journey to try to trace their heritage and trace their ancestry back as far as, as they can. Eventually, records kind of run dry and you get to a point where it's hard because it just gets exponentially bigger. But 25 million people have begun this search for, for their past and their history and their family. And there's a pride that comes with sometimes knowing who our, our family was or what events they were a part of or, you know, dates of immigration or those kinds of things. Like we, we love just knowing where we came from and knowing our, our history. Our history is very important to us. And while it can be exciting to uncover some of those things, it can also be kind of depressing and sobering to see uh, what our family history was like and some of the things that our family took part in. And um, we're going to look this morning back on a, a genealogy, a history of family of Christ as we kind of get into Christmas. But first, I want to just recap kind of the last few weeks that we've been spending in Ruth. So if you guys do have a Bible, let's go to Ruth chapter 4, right at the end there. And uh, I want to just recap the last few weeks, and then I want to finish out Ruth so that we can uh, actually complete it and read the rest of the, the verses. But here's kind of what's happened. So you have Ruth the story begins where, uh, where Naomi loses her husband, her sons, and so Ruth has to make a really hard decision because Naomi says, look, I'm going back to the land, uh, my land of Bethlehem. I want you, my daughters, to go back to your home, and I want you to go back to your family and kind of start over. And Ruth says, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I want, to, I want to come with you. I want to adopt your people as mine, and I want to adopt your God as mine. And in Chapter 1, verse 16 uh, says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. So as Matt told us over the last few weeks, that is the conversion of Ruth. We see her now taking on the God of Israel. We see her taking on the belief that this is the true God. I want to follow your God. And so she follows God and she follows Naomi back to Bethlehem. Ruth goes out and one day just happens to be gleaning in the fields of Naomi's relative, Boaz. And Boaz takes notice of her out of compassion, out of obedience. He allows Ruth to glean in his fields and kind of beyond and actually leaves out some extra grain purposefully for her to take home to Naomi. So God begins to bless Ruth through Boaz in a way. And then Naomi encourages Ruth. She says, hey, you need to go and you need to, to offer yourself in marriage to Boaz. He is a kinsman redeemer in our family line, so go and offer yourself and offer your hand in marriage, and it's a really weird way that she did that. We talked about that by laying down, uncovering his feet, 
weirdest proposal I've ever heard. But she does that, and Boaz goes back, and he has to check to make sure there's no one in line before him. He finds somebody who's in line before him. That guy says, I'll take the land, I'll take the inheritance, but I don't want the woman, so you can have her. No, not really, but kind of, that's how it went. He says, ah, I don't know that I can give up everything and take that on, so I'm foregoing my responsibilities. And so Boaz then takes on the responsibility of kinsman redeemer. And then at the end of chapter four, we see Ruth and Boaz getting married. And so as we get into these few verses here, there's a key verse that I believe is really the key verse of Ruth and the key verse of our time this morning as we go to Matthew chapter one. And even I would say a key verse for us to keep in mind as we get into our Christmas Eve service and Christmas celebration in the next few days. So go to uh, verse 13 in chapter four and here's, here's where we kind of pick up after, after last week. We have Boaz takes Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And here I believe is the key verse, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Hear that again. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. So that idea of not being left without, and then we think about, of course, the foreshadowing that we see all throughout this story, but really in that verse as we think about Christ's coming thousands of years later. So let's continue on reading. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So we already see right here in Ruth that the lineage um, is going to continue on down to King David. And then as we get into our time in Matthew 1, we'll see how that continues on down to Christ. Let's finish out just so we can say that we actually finished Ruth, all right? So uh, verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So there's the line as it goes back a few great-grandparents down to David. So Obed, the son of Boaz and Ruth, would be the grandfather of King David. So let's go over to Matthew chapter 1 because we actually are going to spend most of our time there today. So go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 1. Um, and this is the genealogy of Jesus. And as we read through this, um, you know, maybe if you're an avid Bible reader or if you're not, but you do read the Bible once in a while, you get to these kinds of things. I know for me, this was like the best day in my Bible reading because I knew I could just breeze right through it because I didn't really have to pay attention. It's like, oh, a genealogy, sweet. Checkbox on my devotional because um, I got through it really quick. Same with like names of cities and things like that and, and uh, you know, build the temple in this way and you're like, okay, I can just read all this and you kind of breeze through it. And that's what we tend to do. But I want to really spend some good quality time in this list of names. I know Matt kind of made the joke last week um, that he does like to give me names to preach through. And um, it's true, but there is something very, very cool in looking at especially the genealogy of Christ. And we're going to break it down kind of at the end into three different um, barriers that we see God shattering as he names these names through Matthew. Um, but I want, to, I want to work our way through it. Um, I, I believe that this really is absolutely essential to understand when we get to the story of Jesus and we get down to the birth of Jesus um, down in verse 18 and um, we'll celebrate that, of course, in a couple of days. But I want to read it in its entirety. 
I know it's a bunch of names. We're going to read it. Then I want to work through it and actually get to some, uh, some really cool things in this passage. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Here it is. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, it would seem like an odd way to break the silence after 400 years between Old and New Testament. But this is the way that God does it. And there's a very, very important reason why. Because the most natural and essential way in this time to introduce the story of a man was to begin with the story of his family. So before you got into the story of Christ, Matthew was going, listen, it's important to understand where this man comes from. It's important to understand his history. So it actually was kind of a natural way to begin the story of a particular person. Here's what, um, here's what one commentator said, and this will give you a little bit more as to why this is important. If in any man there was the slightest admixture of foreign blood, he lost his right to be called a Jew and a member of the people of God. A priest, for instance, was bound to produce an unbroken record of his pedigree stretching back to Aaron. And if he married, the woman he married must produce her pedigree for at least five generations back. So the lineage was very, very important to establish up front when it comes to Jesus because there was a lot riding on the Jewish ancestry as far as him being the king of the Jews. Another interesting thing to note is how the writer, Matthew, breaks up this genealogy. It's broken into three categories or three periods of 14 generations. So the first period is from Abraham to David, which is when the monarchy really began to kick in. So you have Abraham down to David, and then you have this period of monarchs, you have all these kings in the line of David, and that goes down to the exile to Babylon, and then that's when you kind of see kingship fall off, and you see, uh, we don't really know a lot about the names in that third portion, but then it goes from there all the way to the birth of Christ. So you have these three periods of time in Israel's history that is, uh, it's broken down into. So I want to get into it, and I want to break this down. So um, the first thing to notice in verse 1 is that right away, Matthew throws out some pretty big names. He throws out 
David and he throws out Abraham. He says, Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And this is very, very important when you think about those that were around at the time, the Jewish readers that would have, um, that would have been hearing uh, about this. So, son of David. This is prophesied in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, the fact that the Messiah would come through the line of David. It says, when your days are fulfilled, this is talking about David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So out of the line of David, we have that man that will come and establish the kingdom forever. So you have this prophesied back in 2 Samuel. This is also very important because all throughout the New Testament, this is what people referred to Christ as. They referred to him as the son of David. And this is not what necessarily the religious folks called him. This is what the common people called him, the ordinary people, because the ordinary and common Jew at that time was very, very hopeful, and they dreamed of a day when the the king, the Messiah, would come from the line of David and would establish his kingdom. So they knew that the one that was going to come, and in their mind, was going to set up a physical kingdom on earth, but their belief was that he was going to come from the line of David. So right away, Matthew's going, listen, this is the one you've been hoping for and dreaming about, and he's here, the son of David, the one that's been prophesied about. And so right away, the son of David, and you see them all throughout the New Testament call him the son of David because that was such an important name to them. He was the one that was going to establish the kingdom of God. Of course, we know they got it a little bit wrong because it was a spiritual kingdom and not a physical one. But nonetheless, they were so hopeful, and that's very, very significant. And then you have Matthew call him the son of Abraham. When you hear him called the son of Abraham, as soon as that name is mentioned, it takes them again back to prophecy, back to stories. It takes them back to Genesis chapter 12. This is where the promises are given to Abraham about the inheritance and about his descendants and the numbers as, as numerous as the stars and the sand and, and all of these people that are going to, but out of that line is going to come the king, is going to come a blessing for all the world. And so they would be taking, taken back to that also when they hear son of Abraham. And so um, he wants these readers right away to believe up front that this is the one that they were waiting for. This is the one they've been hoping for and dreaming for, and he's finally here. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. So very hopeful right away to start things off. But I want to get into the rest of the names, and I want to give you a little bit of commentary. So we're actually going to work our way down through every single name. Now, we know a lot about some. We know a little bit about others, and there's some that we, don't, we just don't know anything about. But I'm going to give you what I can, and it's very, very important, I think, to go through this exercise because of the stories of triumph, but the stories of failure, and the types of people that were found in the history and the lineage of Jesus Christ. So I want to go through these names. It'll be kind of like, uh, like an Old Testament survey class, if you've ever taken something like that, uh, historical Old Testament survey, character sketches, whatever you want to call it. Um, but here we go. So Abraham. Right away, we start with Abraham in verse 2. Abraham is called a friend of God three times. We know Abraham is a great man. Abraham was the father of all who believe. This is what it says back in Genesis. He was justified by God in Genesis 15. And he's even included in what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So much did this man have an impact on Israel and, and on God's people that he's in what we call the hall of faith, a list of names that by faith, by great faith, God did this, by faith, by faith, Abraham is included in that. 
However, if you remember, Abraham lied about his wife. He lied so that he could save his own life. He told people that she was his sister so that they wouldn't kill him because she was very beautiful and he didn't want people to kill him to take his wife. So no, no, she's, she's my sister. So he lied, he was deceitful, he was dishonest. Then you have Isaac who repeated the sin of deception and dishonesty just like his father. He lied about Rebecca being his wife and told people that she was his sister to save his own life. Jacob was given the name Israel after wrestling with God, so he was the father of Israel, but he was a master deceiver. You guys remember the stories of him and Esau, and he tricked Esau into giving him his birthright with the stew, and then he tricked, um, he tricked Isaac into giving him the family inheritance by, by putting on Esau's clothes and putting on goat fur on his hands and his neck, and he was a master deceiver. He cheated his way to get the family inheritance, to get the blessing from Isaac. Then you had Judah. Judah had three sons. His oldest son, Ur, married Tamar. Remember that name. Ur made God mad, so he died. And then Judah's second son, Onan, made God mad, so he died. And then Judah promises his youngest son to Tamar because he's next in taking over his brother's wife as, as wife. But, hey, he's pretty young, so let's wait for him to grow up. He grows up. Judah forgets. Tamar poses as a prostitute. Judah sleeps with Tamar. They have twins. So sleeps with his daughter-in-law in disguise, has twins, Perez and Zerah. Perez, we don't have a lot of info about him, but then Perez is the father of Hezron. Hezron was appointed by Moses to be prince over the tribe of Judah. Pretty good, okay? We don't have anything negative about him. Then Ram, we don't have a lot of info. Aminadab, we don't have a lot of info. We get down to Nashon. He was also appointed by Moses to be prince and military commander of the tribe of Judah, pretty honorary uh, or honorable position um, in the tribe. And then you have Salmon. We don't have a lot of info about Salmon. However, we do know that he marries Rahab. And if you know anything about Rahab, she was the prostitute of, in Jericho that housed the spies um, when they came in to see how the structure of Jericho, can we really take them over, can we destroy? She housed them and was saved and out of being saved from Jericho, married Salmon. So she was a well-known prostitute of the time. And out of Rahab and Salmon, you get Boaz. So Boaz, who we've been talking about the last few weeks with Ruth, is the son of a prostitute. And now you have Boaz and Ruth. We've talked about them, so we don't need to really recap a whole lot. But Boaz is an honorable, honorable man. Ruth, of course, we see she turns from her ways and starts to follow God. And um, they have Obed. And Obed, we don't have a whole lot of info on him either. But Obed has Jesse. The only thing we really know about Jesse is in the story of when Samuel comes to anoint David as king. So we see, um, we see Jesse in that story, but we don't know a whole lot besides that. And then, of course, we get to King David, the most famous king in Israel's history. So much is written about him. Obviously starts his, his life pretty young, doing things that were great for God. In fact, it's, he's called at a young age a man after God's own heart. And this is how God remembers him, someone who is, who is really, he cares deeply about my heart. He wants to do what glorifies me, what honors me. He wants to, to preach me. He wants to follow me, to be obedient to me. Yet, we know the story of David, and he commits adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And as a result of that, she gets pregnant, and so he tries to cover it up by, you know, getting Uriah at a party and, hey, go back to your wife. And 
I refuse. I, I can't be with my wife when all of my soldiers are on the battlefield. So David's like, fine, let's take care of this in secret. He sends them out, puts them on the front line, and has them killed. So David is an adulterer, and he's a murderer. And so you have the greatest king in Israel's history, a man after God's own heart, that has those two sins that are just following him, loses his firstborn son because of that. And then you have, after that, the monarchy really kicks in, right? So now we get into the second portion, and this is where we see all the kings. You have Solomon, who's called one of the wisest men in history, yet he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, a thousand women who were his wives, okay? They eventually, over time, he stayed true to his faith, but over time, these women, you imagine it's a thousand against one, these women start leading him astray, and he begins to worship false idols and begins to set up um, these, these high places and these, uh, all these different mountains, and, and each god has their own kind of place and begins to lead people in the worship of false idols. And so this is what Solomon kind of becomes known for as well. And then um, here's the kings, okay? You have Rehoboam. This is what it says about him in 2 Chronicles. You have abandoned me, so I have abandoned you. This is what God says to Rehoboam. Then you have Abijah. It says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Then you have Asaph. He, he was a good king. He, it says, was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. He instituted reform. He removed male prostitutes from the temple. He cut down Asherah poles. He, uh, he even took his mother out of, out of a position of power because she was one of the leading people in the Asherah worship and, and leading people in that. Then you have Jehoshaphat. We don't know a lot about him. Then you get into uh, Joram. He led his kingdom into idolatry. Uzziah was very intelligent and innovative. However, he was unfaithful to the temple practices, so he was given leprosy. Then you have, then you have Ahaz. He was one of the more evil kings who promoted idol worship and sacrilege against the temple, and it eventually led to the downfall of the kingdom of Judah. Then you have Hezekiah. He had a good and close relationship with God, destroyed all the altars, destroyed all the, the idols, the temples, reopened the temple in Jerusalem. So a good king, a good king that reinstated Passover um, and Levit Levitical priest priesthood and revival begins. But then you have Manasseh, his son, that now comes in, and he did evil in the, in the sight of the Lord. So he rebuilds the temples, he rebuilds the, rebuilds the Asherah poles, altars to Baal, worshiping false gods, killing innocent people. Um, he led Judah, not, not only himself, but he leads the, the nation of Judah into doing these things, which is even worse than just doing them yourself. And so then he's captured into exile, where he actually repents and turns his life around and comes back and rebuilds the temple, um, or, or begins to rebuild places of worship. Amos only ruled for two years. He was assassinated. He was very evil. Josiah was a very godly king. If you know his story, he finds the book of the law in the temple. And at a young age, he's like, we've been doing this all wrong. And so they start all these reforms and in this revival of this young king who begins at uh, seven or eight years old. And then you have Jeconiah who only reigned for three months and uh, then was um, taken into captive in Babylon and was cursed in Jeremiah 22. So those are your kings. Some good kings but some not to brag on as far as, spiritually speaking, and doing things for God. And then we get into the silent years. We're almost done because there's not a whole lot here about these names. So you have Shealtiel. We don't know a lot about him. In fact, the only person in the last portion of genealogy that we really know anything about was Zerubbabel. He was a governor of Judah after the exile, and he was actually revered as one of the Bible's great heroes. He was someone that really worked hard at rebuilding the temple, the house of the Lord, the the places of worship, and so he was actually revered in the nation of Judah as a, as a hero of the faith. And then you have all these other names, and we kind of get into the silent era in between testaments where there's generations, there's still things happening, but we just don't have a lot about those people. So, not sure if you heard it, not sure if you saw it, 
But as Matthew goes through the list, there's walls coming down as far as what is expected and what is, what is believed to be uh, culturally and religiously something to be proud of, something to, to continue, I guess, your position of worship and position of influence. But we hear a lot of things that wouldn't necessarily lend, it, lend itself to that. We hear a lot of names in there that wouldn't really be something to be bragging on. Five names specifically, okay? There's, we're going to get into three barriers that are shattered, but I want to just throw out these five names. I don't know if you noticed these names. Maybe you did. Maybe you know where I'm going, but there's five names in here that it's just, for him to include them in this genealogy is just mind-blowing, okay? I'm going to read these names for you, see if you can gather the connection. It's actually connected in two ways. But you have Tamar in verse 3. You have Rahab in verse 5. You have Ruth in verse 5, the wife of Uriah, we know her as Bathsheba in verse 6, and then you have Mary, of course, in verse 16. So what is the common denominator? They are women, right? They are women, but they are also four of them either Gentile or associated with Gentiles. Now, the first barrier I want to talk about is this barrier that was up at the time between Jew and Gentile. There was a huge barrier that was up between the two people groups. There was a pride that came with being a Jew. They were the chosen people of God. Why would you not have pride in that? But that pride eventually led to a really huge hatred of anybody that wasn't a Jew. We see that with with the Samaritans. We see a really huge hatred for that people group, the Canaanites, the Moabites. The Jews hated these people groups. And so there was a huge divide between Jews and Gentiles. Now, I'll say that, but even in Old Testament, the Gentiles did have an outer place of worship within the temple grounds. So it's not like they weren't ever allowed to worship God, but they were never allowed to get as far into the temple as the Jews were. So they were always kind of left out of being a part of, you know, the nation of Israel, of course, but even being considered as religious or as important as the Jews. And this led, again, to a barrier. So the first barrier that we see that was shattered in this genealogy by God through Matthew is this barrier between Jew and Gentile. The religious leaders of of Jesus' day were of this mindset. But you think about this. Tamar was a Canaanite, not Jewish. Rahab was from Jericho, not Jewish. Ruth was a Moabitess, not Jewish. And Bathsheba was, we don't know, but possibly she was Jewish, but we know that Uriah wasn't. So her husband was a Gentile, and by marrying into a Gentile family, you're taking on the association of a Gentile. So even though she might have been Jewish, she was now looked at as less because she married a Gentile. Listen to Ephesians 3, 1 through 16. Here's what it says there. This is the mystery of the gospel that we talk about often. Um, So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So when Jesus comes, he shatters this this norm of the separation of Jew and Gentile, and he says, no, look, it's 
The gospel is for everybody. I'm coming so that all, Jew, Gentile, Greek, anybody who claims my name will have access to the Father through relationships. So number one, barrier is shattered. And now you have this barrier between men and women. Men and women. It was not a normal thing to find the names of women in a genealogy. It just wasn't normal. The women had no legal rights. They, in fact, were regarded often not as a person, but as a possession of her father or her husband. And he was free to do with that woman as he saw fit. And on top of that, when you look at what these women did, it makes it even more mind-blowing that they would be included in this. So women first and foremost, but then the sins of these women and the lifestyle of these women would have just, it's something to be ashamed of. Um, and, and instead, Jesus goes, I'm not ashamed of, of these people, right? Tamar enters the royal bloodline by disguising herself as a prostitute and just seducing her father-in-law. Um, Rahab didn't have to disguise herself. She was a known prostitute. Ruth was a Moabitess. They were polytheistic pagans. They occasionally offered human sacrifices to their false gods. Uh, Bathsheba was seduced by King David and committed adultery against her husband. Mary, of course, we know the situation surrounding her pregnancy, but people at that time still would have had a negative thought about her. There still would have been shame about that because they may not have believed that Holy Spirit conception is actually how she became pregnant. So um, she had to live with shame from other people because of the way that she got pregnant, because it wasn't her, her husband. Um, so all five, five of these women shared in something, and that is disgrace. Now, it was either because they caused it or because other people looked down on them. But think about that, and you think about, you know, if we have something that's happened in our family history that is disgraceful or something to be ashamed of, we don't, we don't want to talk about that. That's not something that we really want people to know. We kind of hide that away and tuck that away, and um, we're a little bit ashamed of those moments of our history. But not only did Matthew choose to include women in his genealogy, but he included them as equals, and uh, he included women's names who the, the very thought of them would have invoked scandal. But in that mentioning of their names, the barrier between men and women is shattered. So another barrier down. And then you have the barrier between saint and sinner, and that last bit kind of leads us into this. So in the list of his genealogy of the names, here's what we find. We find lying, uh, we find deceit, stealing, prostitution, adultery, murder, immorality, polygamy, materialism, idol worship, false teaching, arrogance, and that's just to name a few. So these are the sins of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. These are the things that they are known for, right? If you know the stories of these people, yes, we know the good, but we also know the, the downfalls. We know the mistakes. We know what those mistakes led to. And so we can look at that and go, man, that's, again, something that we could be ashamed of if that's our family, but um, this is exactly the beauty of the gospel. In this genealogy, I'm telling you, man, you read these names, and we skip over this so often, but when you get down deep into it, you can really see the reason why God would include something like this in Scripture, in the Bible, because you see the gospel in this list of names. You see the beauty of Jesus coming. Here's Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So every nation, every language, every single person under the sun has an opportunity now because of Jesus coming to enter relationship, to be saved, to have salvation, and, and one day be standing before God in worship in this moment that is prophesied in Revelation chapter 7. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, all of our sins nailed to the cross because of Jesus and covered by 
his blood. So in the genealogy, we are given a glimpse of the all-embracing wit of the love of God. Even in this name, God is weaving in grace. He loves to redeem sinners. He loves to produce something beautiful out of shameful family backgrounds. He loves to reconcile enemies. Um, Our family backgrounds does not matter to God in view of Christ. Our mistakes, our downfalls, our sins do not matter to God in view of Christ. And we can become so ashamed and we can become so um, distraught and so guilt-ridden by our mistakes. We can be so ashamed of, of maybe our, our family history, one generation, two generations, ten generations if we know it. Um, but God's saying, look, don't worry about the mistakes. Don't worry about the, the generations. Jesus came to shatter anything that might get in the way of access to me. And I want to end, I want to kind of end with this quote from a pastor that I think wraps it up really, really beautifully when it comes to thinking about this genealogy, our lives, and this leads perfectly into Tuesday night, um, Christmas Eve. If you're not here, I hope you're somewhere, and I hope that you hear uh, a great message of the gospel through the birth of Christ. But this leads us right into the reason why Jesus came. So here's the quote from this pastor. It says, thanks be to God. Jesus broke the repeating cycle of human sin by identifying with and saving wretched sinners like us. Jesus is not ashamed to have Rahab or Manasseh or any other sinners in his family tree. Likewise, he is not ashamed to receive us into his family. Out of love, he rescues us, makes us holy and acceptable in God's sight. He renews and transforms us and will never let us fall away again and be lost to him. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So as I pray for you guys and pray for us, remember Ruth 4.14 This is the key verse. It says, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Let's pray. God, thanks for uh, another Sunday. Thanks for another time we can come together and worship you. Um, And thank you that uh, even in the midst of what seems like just a list of names, we see your grace. We see redemption. We see um, people who were living lifestyles that were uh, things to be ashamed of, lifestyles that weren't glorifying to you, lifestyles that um, would have given them a, a really bad social standing and stigma, but yet you took those people, you turned their lives around, and you allowed them to have relationship with you. Uh, and so you use these people to bring about our Redeemer, our King. And so God, just just allow us this morning to, to look past our mistakes, to look at your Son as, as someone who has, who's covered up our mistakes, the things that have happened in our, in our families, the things that have happened in generations past. God, let us not let those things define us, but let us be defined by you and by your son and by the fact that he came to shatter the barriers that so often get in the way of our relationship with you. He, he did so much on the cross. And God, I pray that over the next few days, as Christmas comes and goes, that we would not miss the opportunity to be thankful, to praise you, to sit in silence and reflect on your son's coming, um, to, to read stories, to watch movies and shows that portray that time and, and really try to get our mind around what went into the birth of your son. And let us look at passages like this one this morning um, that really just show us your love. Um, so we love you so much. Give us a great time of worship now as we just, um, as we reflect in worship and sing about you and your greatness. We love you so much. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit who, uh, who allows us to live every day. Amen.